All right, let's go ahead and get started. Um, As I read the book of Acts, it excites me. I read stories that just absolutely amaze me. For example, in Acts chapter 5, we read the story of the apostles after they were arrested. It says they were brought before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, who you killed by hanging him on the tree. Can you believe that being brought into a trial, being accused, accused of disobeying the leaders and teaching in Jesus' name, Peter's response is boldly to look those men in the face and say, you killed this Jesus and God raised him from the dead. They were beaten and sent out of the council and the text says, that they celebrated. They left the presence of the council after they were beaten now, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day and in the temple from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus is the Christ. So here they're beaten, they're told stop teaching in Jesus' name, and their response is to defiantly look at the council who tells them that and then to immediately go out and start teaching again. Also, I see that they are excited that their names, their reputations have been dishonored and that they bring glory to the name of Jesus. As you read the book of Acts, you read story after story after story after story where the gospel is foremost in the life of the church and the church is exploding. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here is said of the church. I would dare say it's not said of the church today that we've turned the world upside down. In fact, we could honestly, if we were real with ourselves, say that the world has turned the church upside down. If you look at Christianity and the world that we live in today, we're really functionally agnostic Very little thought is given to financial decisions that have anything to do with God or His Word. Political decisions are not made based on an in-depth, Berean-like study of God's Word, but are made based on pragmatism and partyism. We're behavioral agnostics. We do what we think is best. We do what is right in our own eyes. We're sexually agnostic. In my ministry, I probably had 20 people say, I'm divorcing my wife. God has given me peace. It's okay. You see, I can do what I want to do, even though it's in direct contradiction to God's word, because I feel okay about it. We are practically agnostic. John Piper says in his famous seashell sermon, if we could just have a good job, a good wife, a couple of good kids, a nice car, long weekends, a few friends, a fun retirement, a quick and easy death, and no hell, 
then we could deal with that. We'll be satisfied even without God. The church in America has gotten to a point to where when we read verses in the Bible that deal with discipline, spiritual exercises, holiness, we recoil. They feel legalistic. If we read Hebrews 12, 14, where it says, Strive for peace with everyone and strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We don't like that. I I said a prayer. I signed a card. I was baptized. I get to see God. And yet here in the book of Hebrews it says, unless you're living a holy life, you don't see God. In Romans 12, Paul wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We have no idea what it means to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That idea of dying to what I want on a minute-by-minute basis so that my body is lifted up to God as a sacrifice. I don't know about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may win the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we are imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. If you get a book, go online and read about some of the training that Olympic athletes go through, and you see the discipline and sacrifice that they experience just so they can win a piece of metal on a cord, it's amazing. It's something that we Christians don't have any familiarity with. The idea of getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning so that I can run for four or five, uh, 45 minutes to an hour and then go have a very strictly set meal and then look at film and video to make sure that my gait and my running style is exactly correct. And then going and doing something for a couple hours and then coming back and running again. And then going to an ice bath to make sure that my muscles are healing properly. Making sure that I get eight hours sleep so that my body can heal. That kind of discipline for something that's going to pass away is foreign to us. And yet what Paul says is, is we are running a race for eternity. Yet in the church today... When I ask us as a church to uh, just read through a chapter, 10 minutes a day, I had multiple people say, I just really don't have time. And yet I see them on Facebook. I hear them talking about the stuff that they're doing to get their kids to ball. We know nothing of self-sacrifice or discipline. What's the cost to all this? First of all, our lives are riddled and destroyed by sin. Pornography runs rampant among our men. 
Women spend their days watching shows that are just this side of pornography and celebrating. In the church, I see affairs. I see people who are chasing after the American dream, throwing all the resources that God has given them after satisfying their self. And our lives are being destroyed by sin. We think of God's commandments as God being an ogre in the sky that doesn't want us to be happy. He's sitting up in heaven, and if anybody anywhere is experiencing some kind of happiness, he's going to get you. And yet God's command to flee from sin is more like me as a father telling my kids, don't play in the streets. I know what the consequences are going to be. God in his wisdom has given us his word to protect us, to guide us to true happiness and joy. And since we are practical agnostics, we do what we want to do, and we marvel as we suffer the consequences. We have no spiritual vision. The church is tossed to and fro by every silly little doctrine that comes down the pipe. Every stupid book that's written that explains five easy ways for you to do this or ten new steps for that enthralls the church. We're really nothing more than a product or a number. We forget that worth, value, and beauty is not determined by some innate quality, but by the length for which the owner would go to possess it. And broken and ugly things just like us are stamped excellent with ink tapped in wells of divine veins. And yet the divorce rate in the church is exactly like it is outside of the church. The suicide rate in the church is exactly like it is outside of the church. That's not a failure on the part of the church. It's on the, a failure on our part to obey and believe and do what God has told us to do. We have no view of eternity. This world is all we've got because we're living a life that's functionally divorced from the realities of eternity. And John dies at the end. David Wong writes, This is the fact that the world desperately hides from us from us from birth. Long after you find out the truth about sex and Santa Claus, this other myth endures. This one about how you'll always get rescued at the last second, and if not, your death will at least mean something, and there'll be somebody there to hold your hand and cry over you. All of society is built to prop up that lie. The whole world, a big, noisy puppet show meant to distract us from the fact that at the end, you'll die and you'll probably be alone. We as the, in the church had the antidote for that. We know that God's word tells us that after our last breath, our next step is written down in God's word. And yet that unbelievably powerful truth is left impotent because God's word sits gathering dust on the coffee table We don't see the church for what it is. The church, not this church, but the church universal is something that God has instilled so that we can conquer the world in our own heart. 
C.S. Lewis said of the church in the screw tape letters, the church spread but through all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. And yet we look at the church as the little building on the corner I got to go to on Sunday to get that check in the box. And we miss the tool. We miss the opportunity. And we're paying the consequences. U.S. church membership was 70% or higher from 1937 through 1976, falling modestly to an average of 68% in the 70s through the 90s. In the past 20 years, we've seen that number accelerated with a 20% point decline since 1999. And over half of that change occurred since the start of the current decade. For Southern Baptists, for our own people, total baptism, which is our number one metric for determining church life, this last year it fell by 4%, the lowest number in the Southern Baptist Convention since World War II. We are dying. In Greek mythology, we read a story of Cassandra and Agamemnon. And Cassandra says to Agamemnon, I smell the open grave. The grave is dug and waiting for us. That truth seems to be our reality. We are zombified. We are dead, but we're still shuffling around without a mind, without a heart, but we're moving. Jesus said it this way in the book of Revelation, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? that Jesus is saying to the church, if you don't repent, I am going to be fighting against you. So how do we remember? How do we remember what we received and heard? Let's go back to the book of Acts. Let's go back to the teachings of Jesus. There is a concept that is woven through the entirety of the New Testament. From the teachings of Jesus to the writings of Paul, we hear it echo. And that is the idea of the way. Christianity was never designed to be something that stuck onto our lives. Christianity is not supposed to be something that we have our lives the way we like it, and then we stick Jesus on the outside that we put Jesus in our pockets so that when we need him, we can take him out and rub him and he answers our prayer. No, Christianity from its inception was meant to be the way that you live your life. From the moment that you wake up to the moment that you lay down at night, 
Christianity is supposed to be the dominant aspect. It is the way. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That is all-encompassing. That covers every aspect. It is the way that we go. It is the truth that we live by. And it is the very air we breathe. In Matthew 7, we read Jesus comparing contrast between the way that we're living our lives and the way of the way. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those that enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus is talking about a lifestyle, the normal, everyday way that everyone has lived since Adam, where they get up, they go to work, they give in marriage, they're given in marriage, they raise their crops, they feed their family, they die. That's easy. That's the normal way. That's the natural way. The idea of getting up on a daily basis and ensuring that today I'm going to become a little bit more like Jesus than I was yesterday. Today, I'm going to fight against my lust. Today, I'm in battle to the point that if my right hand offends me, I'm going to cut it off. I'm fighting my natural tendencies. I'm fighting against myself. I'm inspecting my life daily to ensure that I see fruit. And in those areas that need to be pruned back, I'm pruning. I'm letting God's word dictate and guide me. That way is hard. And few there be that find it. This idea of the way is something that's so predominant in New Testament Christianity that when the church was originally started, it was called the way. John MacArthur writes, the description of Christianity as the way appears several times in the book of Acts. Acts 19.9, Acts 19.23, Acts 22.4, 24.14, and 22. It apparently derives, I'm still quoting, from Jesus' description of his himself as the way, the truth, and the life. The way is an apropos title for Christianity since it is the way of God. The way into the holy place, according to Hebrews 10, and the way of truth, according to 2 Peter 2.2. 2. In Acts 9.2, we read, spoken of the church, that Paul, a Saul, asked for letters to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. In Acts 11, it's said that when he found them, he brought them to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So in Acts 11, Luke recognizes that, Christ, that Christians are called Christians. And yet, through the book of Acts, he continues to use the, the term the way, implying to me that he prefers that as a way to describe what we believe. In Acts 19, and at that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For the next few weeks, I want us to look at 
the idea of discipline and the way. I've divided our teaching up into three sections. One, the way, so that we understand what we're talking about. The truth, what are the truths that the Bible lays out for us to follow, and the life. How does it practically look day by day by day? I fear as I look around me in the light of COVID and and all that's going on in our world that Christians are crippled by fear, that decisions are made based on what's best for me and my family and what do I want to do. And so rather than be disheartened by that, I've decided that we're going to take Wednesday night for the next few weeks and we're going to look at this idea of the way. We're going to create if you will, a field guide for how to live life. We're going to re-examine some of the basic tenets of Christianity and apply them to our lives. I long to see the power that I see in the book of Acts. I long to see the church triumphant. So let us, as a body, take this time to dig deep over the next few weeks and then examine our hearts to see if we're willing to follow the way or whether we want to continue down the broad way. Father God, Lord, I pray that you would apply your word to our hearts. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to how you've called us to a radical, fundamental shift in the way that we think and the way that we do things. God, forgive us for our attempt to live the American dream with a Jesus bumper sticker on the outside. Lord, we love you. God, don't come fight against us. Give us the strength to repent. In Jesus' name, amen. Go serve your king.